How do you go about starting to build a sandbox? Are there any tips on making a start on a new sandbox game? And how does the sandbox connect the game structures together? Hello, rescuers. My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about finding your way back to the gaming table. Today's episode builds on my earlier discussions about building a dungeon adventure and generally about getting started as a GM. To keep things simple, I'm going to assume we are building a fantasy role-playing experience, largely because that's the most popular genre out there. Along the way, I hope to begin to touch on how building a sandbox goes a long way towards pulling together all the theory on game structures and how to make life easy as a GM long term. This is Season 3, Episode 10. Back in Season 1, in my interview with Gavin Norman, the creator of BX Essentials, which is now Old School Essentials, we talked about getting started with a small dungeon and a small wilderness around it. This suggestion for how to begin play in a fantasy adventure game has been noodling around in my noggin for a few months, and it strikes me as being one of the simplest routes back to running a game for your friends. When I started fantasy role-playing way back in the 1980s, we started with dungeon adventures and pre-written modules. Some of the most iconic modules from that era, stuff like Keep on the Borderlands and The Villager Homlet, essentially started with three key elements. There was a starting village or town, there was a dungeon which was the main focus of the adventure, and there was some wilderness in between. For a lot of my gaming back in the day, however, we really didn't know much about how to do the wilderness bit, or at least it seemed like the GM at the time didn't. My first true experience of wilderness adventure came not from Dungeons and Dragons or RuneQuest, but rather from Star Frontiers. Star Frontiers was TSR's flagship science fiction game of the mid-1980s. My first experience of playing it was through the introductory adventure Crash on Volturnus. In that adventure, you are a crew on board a starship which, you guessed it, is going down and crash lands on the burning surface of a world aptly named Volturnus. But the real genius of the module, from my perspective, was the introduction to us, as a playing group, to the idea of a wilderness adventure. It was an exploration and survival adventure, using what I would call now the hexcrawl game structure. And it was glorious. I recently reacquired a full set of the Star Frontiers game materials, and the first thing I did was go and dig out Crash on Volturnus. If you want a really good introduction on how to run a hex crawl, this is a great example of how it was done back in the day. I rather suspect it might have been the last time that starter sets really actively taught new players how to run a hex crawl. And that's my starting point for this episode. I don't think modern role-playing games do a very good job of introducing new players and budding game masters to the classic game structures of the past. Perhaps that's because modern game writers don't use those game structures anymore. Perhaps they prefer the far more prevalent advice to construct a plot and run your players through a pre-designed sequence of encounters. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. It's just that writing plots and running players through pre-designed sequences of encounters is, in truth, a lot more hard work than running any of the mystery, hex crawl or dungeon crawl game structures. 
and so I feel it's important to share some of the ideas that I personally feel have gone AWOL from Cool Rulebooks. What is a sandbox? In simple terms, a sandbox is gamer jargon for an area of play within which a campaign will be launched. In a fantasy campaign, it's typically a mapped region of territory with a number of points of interest plotted onto the map. Being a bluff old traditionalist, I tend towards using hex paper and a six mile per hex scale, hence the use of the term hex crawl to describe the player activity of moving across this play space and exploring its points of interest. Honestly, it doesn't have to be a hexed map. Hexes are a weird throwback to the early days of wargaming, which got carried forward into role-playing games because of the fact that Gygax and Arneson, the creators of Dungeons & Dragons, started out within the wargaming community. I know that a lot of modern players, and even some of the grognards, are disapproving of the wargaming roots of role-playing games, but them's the facts. In a Call of Cthulhu or modern conspiracy game, your map could be of London and your points of interest can be locations upon that map. In a science fiction game, your map could be a 3D interface simulating the scientifically accurate movements of the star and planets within a solar system. Whatever. Just because we call the game structure a hex crawl doesn't mean it has to use hexes. Maybe we should use Alexander McCree's term instead. He calls it a story web. Quote, the technique I use to allow emergent storytelling is something I call a story web. My approach is geographical, location-based rather than event-based. I begin by sketching out a map of the play space within which the campaign will launch, a sandbox, and developing about 10 to 20 points of interest within it, end quote. Having a sandbox or story web is first of all a big step away from running a directed story and a big step towards allowing players to experience an emergent story instead. The big shift in playstyle away from the classical game structures is usually attributed to my favourite D&D module of the 1980s, Dragons of Despair, the first of the Dragonlance module series. In actual fact, I see that module as the transition point between the older hex crawl structure and offering a shift towards a directed story. There is, in point of fact, a hex map in that module and the players move across it having encounters. But there is also a sequence of events that cause major change on both the player characters and the situation they find themselves within. This was the beginning of a transition towards creating a story arc in a role-playing campaign. In the 1980s, the creation of story arcs was revolutionary. Looking back, many gamers today would find it hard to believe that anyone would play in any other way. It's possible that you've never played in any other way, because unless you were around before 1985, you probably didn't get introduced to play using the older game structures. The new structure the directed story, became dominant and, I would argue, remains so today. And the directed story can be a lot of fun to play in. Alexander McCree, in his book Arbiter of Worlds, puts it like this, quote, Story arcs were revolutionary 
adding a highly detailed backstory, depth, and a sense of purpose to what had previously been only loosely connected modules. And those were wonderful things, things that any good game master should strive to have in their game. But there is a hidden cost to the story arc, a cost in player agency, end quote. He goes on to explain that a story arc only works if the narrator can create a plot. Quote, a series of events that affects change on the situation of his protagonists. If the narrator is a game master, then the players are his protagonists, and he's made a commitment in affecting change on them. If the narrator is a game master, then the players are his protagonists, and he's made a commitment to affecting change on them. The players are now the objects rather than the subjects of a story. A story arc transforms adventurers and agents into actors and audience. End quote. To help understand why this might be a problem, I turn to the angry GM in his book Game Angry. I've mentioned this before, but he has a rather nifty outline on what player agency is all about. For Angry, the player's agency is, quote, the heart of the game. If you truly want to run the least worst game you can run, you have to understand the elements that really make an RPG unique. Sure, freedom is part of it, but not all of it. In fact, what you've been thinking of as freedom is part of something bigger. See, role-playing games actually have three hearts beating away inside their chests. Three core principles that make them what they are. And it's your job to keep them pumping. Because if they start to slow down or clog up, they will wreck your game. End quote. Those three beating hearts are the three levels of player agency. This is, by the way, a narrative term that refers to a character's power to affect the outcome of their story. Let's look again at the three levels. Level 1 agency is the freedom to choose how to deal with the situation. Most GMs give this level of agency to their players. It's the freedom to decide how to handle a group of kobolds in the room, or how to investigate the crime scene, or how to tackle the negotiation. We are familiar with level 1 agency. That familiarity is probably the root of arguments about how running a plotted game or a directed story doesn't take away from player agency. If you put the players into an encounter and let them loose, they still have level 1 agency. They have freedom to choose how to deal with the situation. Problems arise when GMs don't know about, or cease to care about, the other two levels. Level 2 agency is the freedom to choose a situation. Quote, That's the agency the heroes have whenever the heroes are actually choosing their path through the adventure, and, by doing so, choosing which obstacles they face. When exploring a dungeon, the players can choose which rooms to explore. When they are travelling across country, they can choose which road to take, or go off the road. They can choose who to talk to in town. They can decide whether to fight their way to the front or sneak around back, end quote. Again, some narrative-focused GMs allow players some level 2 agency. Some don't, though. I've sat at tables with GMs who proudly tell me how clever they are when their players go off the road. They took the north road instead of the south road? But that's okay, because I just moved the tower they were supposed to visit to the south. Suddenly, those players lost their level 2 agency. They lost the power to choose the situation. At least that old Dragonlance module offered this level of agency. You could crawl that map from top to bottom, take as long as you wanted, 
because that old Dragonlance module began the change. What it did is take away level 3 agency. Level 3 agency is the freedom to choose the goal. Quote, this is the agency the heroes are exercising whenever they decide what goals to pursue. Usually you, as a GM, set the goal of the adventure. You assign the heroes a quest like rescuing a beautiful treasure or plundering an ancient princess. The heroes either encounter obstacles on the way and decide how to handle them, agency level 1, or they figure out the best path to the goal and deal with the obstacles as they see fit, agency level 2. But at agency level 3, the heroes get to choose their own goals. They do whatever they want, end quote. This is the great strength of playing in a sandbox. You preserve all three levels of player agency. You can keep the three beating hearts of the game pumping, strong and effective. The players can choose how to deal with each situation that arises in the game. They can choose which situations they put themselves into. And they can choose their goals within the game. They can do anything they want. Alexander McCree writes, quote, For this reason, I call campaigns that use a story arc directed stories. The game master, like a stage or movie director, is directing the sequence of events that will occur with an eye towards achieving particular outcomes or expressing particular themes. It is story focused on what happens next. The opposite of directed story is emergent story. Story focused on what just happened. Emergent story is the memoirs of your fictional characters and the history of their fictional deeds, end quote. But, as McCree points out, emergent story does not, quote, happen in a vacuum, end quote. That's where the sandbox, the area of play within which a campaign will be launched, will be paramount. I think one of the best outlines for how to create a sandbox comes from the chapter in the expert Dungeons & Dragons rulebook from 1983. That's probably because that's the first place I personally saw a description of how to create a wilderness for a fantasy role-playing game. Today, I'd advise grabbing Gavin Norman's excellent old-school essentials rules themselves based on the 1981 basic expert Dungeons & Dragons rule set and check out the section on creating a wilderness. It's functionally the same as what I'm going to refer to here, but it's much more clearly laid out, and it's currently in print, rather than merely being in PDF. Of course, for me, it's lovely to open that old expert rulebook once again. It's been a part of my life since the beginning of the hobby, and it's a treasure trove of great advice. Nostalgia, eh? Well, this is more than mere nostalgia. I think that the Beckme edition of D&D might have been the last time that TSR published useful guidance on how to run the D&D game. In other words, I think this was the last edition of D&D that retained the full set of advice on both the dungeon crawl in the basic set and the hex crawl in the expert set as game structures. But I digress, again. On page 28 of the expert rulebook, we read under the title Part 1, Designing the Wilderness, of the eight steps that Frank Menzer advised new gamers to use. 1. Choose a setting. He writes, quote, A single valley, island, or barony is good to start with. End quote. 2. Draw maps of the area. 3. Place the hometown and local dungeons. 4. Locate areas under human control. 5. Locate areas under non-human control. 6. Describe the hometown. 7. Fill in the other details, by which we mean, quote, notes on local NPCs, rumours and points of interest, end quote. 
8, create layers and encounter tables. And that's pretty solid advice. There, see? Job done. Almost. If there is one thing that 36 years of gaming has taught me, it's that there are a couple of extra steps that make creating a sandbox a little more rewarding and add a great deal of coherence that GMs moving away from a directed story approach often bemoan. For the best expression of these extra tips, I'd suggest we turn back to Alexander McCree's book, Arbiter of Worlds. I do like to minimise the number of tomes I reference in any single episode, and so far I think we have three. But let's go speak to Alexander McCree. Chapter 7 of Alexander McCree's Arbiter of Worlds is named Tops and Bottoms. (laughs) That made me giggle with teenage mirth when I first read it. I'm so childish at times. Tops and bottoms. In this chapter, McCree outlines the two dominant approaches to building a new sandbox. The top-down and the bottom-up approaches. Top-down designers are world-focused. Quote, they like to establish a framework for their world, laying out the backstory, major characters and points of interest in advance. In this way, the game master achieves a holistic creation in which every part makes sense in the context of the whole, end quote. Bottom-up designers are more like Frank Mentzer in the D&D Expert rulebook. They are player-focused. Quote, they begin with whatever will be in the immediate vicinity of the player characters and flesh that area out in great detail. They generally leave the framework of their world open or at most very thinly sketched, feeling that major characters and points of interest can best be developed over the course of play, end quote. Examples of top-down design includes work like Dark Sun, Eberron and Dragonlance. Examples of bottom-up design would include Blackmoor, Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms. Neither is better per se. Quote, which is better largely depends on your personal preferences, but there are some tonal factors to consider. Top-down design lends itself to high fantasy, in which the scope of the adventures is potentially epic. Bottom-up design lends itself to swords and sorcery, in which the adventures are of a more personal scope, and what matters most is the characters, not the world. Top-down design tends to result in a world that is more flavoured and thematic, but less flexible. In contrast, bottom-up design worlds tend to be much more gonzo, and things tend to get added that don't fit into any larger pattern, because there isn't any, end quote. McCree advises a design method that lies between the two traditional schools. He calls it top-down zoom-in. Quote, The top-down zoom-in approach means starting with a light top-down framework, but creating increasing detail as you get closer to the areas of the setting that the players are most likely to interact with. End quote. To modify the process of creating a sandbox outlined by Mentzer, we'd just add an additional step before the list found in Expert D&D. Start by writing a paragraph that outlines the high concept and establishes the setting your sandbox will be created within, giving a sense of the overall scope of the challenges in this new fantasy world. When I wrote my own high concept paragraph for my Kovnia, the fantasy world I'm creating for the Friday Night Gamers and the Castle Crusade Society at school, I wrote an extended piece from which I'd like to share a few ideas by way of example. Being me, however, I couldn't just write one paragraph, but ended up writing three, but I'll not inflict all of that on you here. 
The first paragraph reads, Long ago there was a mighty great kingdom, an alliance between men and elves which traded with the three dwarven kingdoms. The great kingdom was enlightened and made great advances in the magical arts, natural philosophy and theology. It is said that there were great cities within which stood mighty academies of learning. The people worked for the betterment of all and lived within the protection of the greatest armies that have ever been seen since the days of legend. But the great kingdom fell. From there, I outlined how two major events, the bursting into life of dragon lines or ley lines, which filled the world with a magical overload, and the impact of a series of comets into the world's surface, and how that destroyed what used to be and reduced the world to what it became. In short, I outlined the apocalyptic events that led to what is important to understand in Mykovnia. It is at heart a classically post-apocalyptic fantasy. Being me, I cheated and veered from this concept into creating my own huge-scale continent map. McCree would perhaps see this as a waste of time, but for me, it was the first step in zooming in to the play space in which the game is going to begin. I needed that first layer of zoom to give me a huge canvas upon which to paint my campaign in broad strokes. The map is a sketch only, with just the major bodies of water, mountains, larger rivers, and an outline of territories defined by either geography or politics. If you want to take this top-down zoom-in thing the way I did, then you need to grab a copy of Kent David Kelly's Game World Generator Deluxe Edition. It's from the Castle Old School range of ebooks. I'll stick links to all these books in the show notes. But from writing your top-down paragraph, McCree then lists some useful stuff to write about. 1. Write a two-page backstory for your mega-setting and sketch a timeline for it. 2. Write some paragraphs for A. Recent history, B. Classical history, C. Ancient history, and D. Forgotten history. 3. Write about the primary culture within the region that the game is going to be set in. Focus on the stuff that people need to know to create characters, like how people dress or what tools and tech is available. From there, you zoom in to the micro-setting you want to begin the campaign within. Quote, start with a hex map, roughly 30 hexes by 40 hexes, where each hex is 6 miles wide, about 30 square miles, end quote. As I mentioned earlier, you don't need to use a hex map. What McCree is suggesting is an area of about 43,200 square miles, a region about the size of Greece. Quote, Within that map, you will place 45 static points of interest. One third of these should be settlements, towns and castles of humans and demi-humans, while the other two thirds are dungeons, lairs or special areas. End quote. He suggests a list such as three large dungeons, each designed for about six to ten sessions of play. 10 dungeons designed for 1-2 to two sessions of play, and 17 small layers designed for a half session of play, in other words, about one large encounter. I think we are back to Mensa's earlier list, but with a few useful suggestions that add practical expectations on the scale of each dungeon, lair, or other special area. Let's review the expert list. Draw maps of the area, place the hometown and local dungeons, locate areas under human control, Locate areas under non-human control. Describe the hometown. Fill in notes on local NPCs, rumours and points of interest. Create layers and encounter tables. It's that last point that I do want to draw your attention to before we finish. Create encounter tables. 
Encounter tables create an element of dynamic play. In other words, there is a randomly generated series of encounters or situations with which the party of characters must contend. This gives the illusion of a dynamic world in which monsters do not merely sit around waiting to be encountered. Instead, the denizens of your world wander and can be interacted with on a more naturalistic level. McCree writes, quote, I recommend creating a chart of wandering encounters for each type of terrain on your map, end quote. What he is suggesting, however, is more than just wandering monsters. McCree airs the idea of having some layers and encounters which are pre-designed, but not plotted onto the map until they turn up on the roll of the dice. I like this idea as it gives that an added density of encountered points of interest that correspond to the movement of the player characters. Wherever they wander, they tend to discover more interesting things than simply the stuff I started with on the map. The Adventurer Conqueror King supplement, Layers and Encounters, is perfect for this kind of thing because it contains a sample layer for just about all the major monsters in a D&D style game. Sprinkle to your wandering encounters list liberally, I suggest. As a final word on random encounters, I'd also like to suggest taking a leaf from Tim Shorts of Gothry's Manor, who recommends adding random clues to your encounter tables. He likes to sprinkle clues to some of the lairs and dungeons on his maps, not just around the setting in fixed places, but also randomly onto encounter tables. If you are using the three-clue rule, and we really should be using the three-clue rule in our gaming, this is a great way to sprinkle clues into the player's path without seeming to do so deliberately. And that's about all I had to say about how to build a sandbox. At least, it is for now. This podcast is all about helping lapsed gamers find a route back to the gaming table, and I've shared some interesting suggestions about that over the past 25 or so episodes. The best episodes, though, have arisen from the questions that you, the listeners, have asked. Thus, I'm going to ask you, what questions do you still have? If you ever want to get in touch, ask questions, or share your point of view, you can leave me a voice message. Just download the Anchor mobile app, search for Roleplay Rescue, and tap on the messages button to leave yours. Without you, the listeners, I can't hope to tackle the problems people face in really getting back to the table. Thank you for your support. Today we've looked at the richness that can be found in encouraging an emergent play style within a fantasy sandbox campaign. We've also talked through the various theory on how to do it. If it all seems a bit overwhelming... I'd ultimately refer you back to the expert bit of the BX or Beckme D&D rules from the 1980s. Actually, you'll find these best presented within the pages of Gavin Norman's Old School Essentials from Necrotic Gnome. We've looked at the benefits of emergent play and the impact it has on player agency. We've talked through top-down versus bottom-up world design. We've touched on a whole raft of tips and tricks that will help the budding GM to create a good play space within which their players can immerse themselves. I reckon the stories you'll be telling of the adventures had in that sandbox, they'll be pretty good. What's holding you back? Well, it's probably the sense that building a sandbox is a lot of work. And you'd be right. It is a lot of work up front. That said, once set up and running... Sandbox play is, generally speaking, less work for the GM on an ongoing basis. Each session follows from the last in a sequence determined not by you having to write the plot, 
but instead by what the players choose to do. It'll also be more fun because you won't really know where things are going. As GM, you'll have the pleasure of playing the game with them, running the sandbox and allowing the players to choose their own destiny. That's a way more interesting than just running them through your predetermined sequence of events. Give it a go. Build yourself a sandbox and let some players loose in it. It's the way the game was originally designed and it's the way that has made many a gamer happy for these past 45 or more years. Roleplay Rescue is supported by a small but dedicated community of roleplayers. People just like you who fund the podcast production through the Roleplay Rescue Patreon page. That's at patreon.com forward slash RPG Rescue. Once again, I'd like to give a big shout out to all the supporters of the show whose patronage helps to keep the flame burning. This week, I'd especially like to call out the 20th supporter, the enigmatically titled Pure Mongrel, who has joined us this week and tipped us over into hitting our second Patreon goal. As a result, I will be producing a bonus episode on the topic of gaming with teenagers, and I'll be releasing that as soon as I can over the coming weeks. Bear with me, though, as life is pretty crazy right now. If you want to join the merry patrons of Roleplay Rescue, please pop over to patreon.com forward slash RPG Rescue and make your pledge. The next goal is at 30 members, and that will release further bonus episodes, this time about gaming with school kids. So here they are, the mighty list, the mighty order of battle, those patrons who support Roleplay Rescue. The mighty sword bearers, Nick Lockwood and Mark Grahan. The brave shield bearers, Pure Mongrel, Aaron Barkley, Tim Shorts, Ray Otis and Frank Turfler. The intrepid torchbearers, including the armchair adventurers, and Brian Miller, Jeffrey Collier, Spencer Game, Hobbs and Friends, Richard Fraser, Matt Jackson, Darren Green, aka Arfed, Glenn Robinson, Edwin King, Christian Richards, Peter Skeynes, and Vance Atkins. Thank you, all of you. Game on! Hey Jay, it's Liren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere. Thank you for that awesome interview. That was really interesting. I love to hear people's stories about why they game and how they game and their thoughts around things like that. And Frank is a really fascinating guy. What a great choice for a person to interview. Anyway, thank you. Hey Liren, thank you so much for calling. And I'm really glad you enjoyed the episode with Frank. I really enjoyed recording it. I think Frank and I have a lot in common and I hope he enjoyed the conversation as much as I did because it was absolutely fascinating. I just think it's great that you took the time to call in and to tell us both that it was worth doing and, you know, really had value to you. It matters so much to me and I know it'll matter a lot to Frank as well to know that somebody was listening. So thanks, Lira, and thanks for calling. Thanks for listening to this episode of Roleplay Rescue. I hope you enjoyed it. Huge thanks to Frank Mensah, 
Gavin Norman, Alexander McCree, Scott, the angry GM, Reem, and Tim Shorts for inspiring this episode and for feeding my understanding of role-playing games generally. Thank you also to the amazing Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through their generous donations and their encouraging words. And thank you to the listener for grabbing this episode, giving it a listen and, you know, having a think about it. I'm Che Webster. Thanks for listening. And I'll be back next week with another episode of Roleplay Rescue. Game on.